welcome back to the Your Project Shepherd podcast, where we teach that every successful project has four key components demonstrated by this simple drawing of a house. The foundation is proper planning, the left wall is your team, the right wall is communication, and the roof protecting it all is proper execution. Have all those components in place and your project is going to succeed. Today we have an episode where there are no other guests besides Toner Kirsting. Who well, is... actually, the topic is the guest today. I mean, this is a pretty big topic. Yeah. So, I mean, this topic covers a lot of area. Although it seems inconsequential and most people kind of gloss over flooring. So we're, we're talking about flooring choosing the right flooring, why flooring has issues in different situations. And so Did you blow right past my dad joke on that. This topic covers a lot of area. That was awesome. I mean, I buried yeah, it in the lead. I, that I was great. It. I think Danielle chuckled. I just didn't look at her. So. <laughs> she got it. So we want to talk about like why flooring systems fail. And again, that's one of those things that the choice of flooring and the choice of the flooring for, for your application is something that yeah, builders, homeowners, designers gloss over all the time, and it's 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 one of the the ways that uh, uh, issues often present themselves. Right, like we we walk into a house and I I look at the floors and I see ripples in the floors, I see buckling, and bingo, that tells me what's going on within seconds of walking into a house. I mean, most definitely. I mean, so one of our forensic techniques is to take our shoes off and scoot scoot around on our socks, and I'll literally tell the homeowner, "Hey, this is a very technical." thing that I'm doing here. And we, we like to say that we're Tom cruising across it. You, that's another yeah. little reference for you. Yep, yep. I said, we're dressed. Uh, we have, we have pants on. Um, so, uh, but we scoot around the little, and I will bring, it's amazing how many times I go turn to a client. I'm like, Hey, are you guys okay with your wood floor warping? They're like, I, I didn't, I didn't even notice it. So people are walking across these surfaces, um, wood floors, tiles, um, how many times you're walking across tile and you hear the hollow tile, right? I will go into the another technical forensic approach. So I'll go into their utility room and take a broom, flip it over, and take the end of the broom handle and go tap, 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 tap. Oh, there's a hollow tile. Like, yes, this is a very technical. But I actually learned that from an old tile guy back in the 90s when he was saying, when homeowners were telling them that, Hey, this tile is popping up or the grout is cracking. And he took a piece, a uh, piece of wood and tapped on it. He said, yeah, cause this one's hollow. The others are not around it. So this is the weakest point. That's why the grout is cracking around this tile. I walk into houses and, and one of the first things I, I, I notice is, um, is rippling on the floors. And I think people don't see it because they, they're in there every day and they, they just kind of become blind to it or they yep. think, oh, that's the way. Floors are supposed to be like that. You're supposed to have little ridges between the boards or something like that, right? Yep. But I walk in all the time. I'm like, do you think you have a moisture or, or did you know that you have a moisture <laughs> issue with your floors? And they're like, what? What do you mean? Yeah. It's the dirty glasses principle, right? My mom used to always turn me and go, your glasses are filthy. Right. What do you mean? I'm looking through them all day long and I don't see the filth, Yeah. right? Probably should have cleaned my glasses before I made that comment. But it's the idea that they, they you don't realize what's going on in your house because life is going on in your house. Right. This is like one of the ways that, that moisture issues often present themselves, um, especially when the house is uh, on a crawl space or if it's like an, an older house on a concrete slab or maybe even a newer house on a, concre on a concrete slab where it wasn't prepared pro or wasn't installed properly. But an, an older house here in Houston, we see this a lot on 1950s, you know, ranch style homes on slabs where maybe there was no plastic put down under that foundation to begin with, which yeah. is which is typical. 
um, or maybe they've just had a lot, of, a lot of cracks, or they've had past foundation repairs, and when they patched the the, the foundation repair holes, you know they didn't they didn't address that 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 moisture barrier, and so you'll see uh, wood floors with rippling in them. You'll see um, well, sorry, <laughs> and, and so wood floors warping on top of the first floor, I can deal with that. Um, when someone really needs to worry is when the wood floors are warping on the second floor. Um, because then it's like, okay, what is creating that? A lot of times it's a cold floor issue. So if we go into that room that's above the garage, that makes sense. Okay. That's a cold floor wasn't sealed properly. But when we have, um, we have, we deal with this, especially South of Beltway eight and kind of in Bel Air area. And then also over in the Katy area where we have pretty heavy wind loads, um, unsealed mid band joists. I mean, the way that you block and seal for energy code doesn't manage through water vapor, um, and the wind loads are greater than even the techniques that you do seal with. So hot, wet air will blow into that assembly and it has to choose two locations to go. It'll go up or down based on what's the driest and what's the coolest. So the, the heat could go down to the coolest, but the humidity may be drier or the relative may be drier above. So the humidity goes up. So you could have two different range, ranges of movement for two different total, totally different elements. So they need it with, with that warped flooring. Um, but I got a call last week. Actually, I had two calls last week, um, two totally different people, um, both good builders um, with good intent. Um, and one of them has replaced the treads on the staircase three summers in a row. Um, this summer, they replaced it back at the beginning of, of June because they were already cupped. And he said, now they're back worse than they ever have been before. And every summer, it's gotten worse and worse and worse and worse. So cupped flooring, your stair tread is a flooring element. Um, normally one that is a distinct material different than what you would put on the wood floors. Right. Um, and it's on a, a stairs are an extremely complex assembly. We have very, very specific instructions in staircase construction. There's a specification we call staircase construction that speaks to how to prevent that specific thing from acting or happening. And that requires a structural, the, the involvement of the structural engineer, the architect, and the builder to avoid that one problem because it is very difficult to correct after the fact. And I've got a house. In fact, I called you about it last week that we're going to go look at next week. And this is, this is one that I did like 10 years ago. It's a house that it's a 1950s house that we put an, an addition on exact same thing is happening. And, and to be quite honest with you, like this, I did this job really back before I kind of got into mm-hmm. or increased my knowledge of, of, of how these things affect homes and building science. You know, I just followed what was on the plans back then, right? But it's you know existing one-story 1950s house slapped a second floor across the back of it with a stairwell across the back on an exterior wall. All the stair treads are cupping. Um, all the floors around it on each floor are cupping. We're gonna go check it out next week. The second house and your your house that you referenced was not one of the two houses I was right. referencing. The second one, no one's done any work. Zero work has happened. They're getting ready to do a remodel. And in the effort, they have changed out all the windows and all the AC systems. Mm. Now the, st- the stair treads are cupping and the homeowners have lived there for 15 years and like, this has never happened before. I'm like, but what'd, you, you, what, what'd you change? What did you change? So um, we have offered our services to come over there to figure that out. But I know we ask a certain series of questions and in our initial intakes to kind of see, okay, what did they people believe they have not modified their structures. In actuality, they have modified their structures. Um, so we'll go figure that one out too. 
Um, once again, very, very difficult to, uh, issue to fix without massive construction. I have one in um, Austin that we're actually fixing in East Austin. Um, and then it's going to involve very, very big effort by an architect just to make it look good when it's all said and done. So one thing I was going to mention on, on the house that I, that I talked about that I did is in fact, you and I joked about this. You said you put your ideas <laughs> on a piece of paper, stick it in a sealed envelope. And then and and we can then, act like Karnak and, and see if we can figure it out. And then you'll walk through and give your ideas, and we'll see if I guessed the same thing that you guessed, yeah. right? So maybe I shouldn't get into too much detail right yeah, now don't, on don't. that because I, I don't want to give you my ideas. Yes, but you do. do I do want to do that, and we can talk about it, right? On, on we'll have a, a little recap when we do the the recap of the season. Let's recap that. You write down on a piece of paper or, or type it up what you think yeah. is creating it. It's not as simple as one word, and then I'll type up what I think. We did it, and then we'll open them up together and see how far apart we are. I'll, I'll stick it on my forehead and <laughs> the great Karnak. <laughs> All right. So um, one thing I, I wanted to talk about, uh, and so backing up a little bit. So th- I mentioned that often the causes of flooring issues are either you know flooring on a uh, crawl space uh, that's not properly sealed or over a concrete slab. So just for people who are listening who don't know how this works, let's just talk about you know, why that happens. So if, if we're talking concrete slab, first of all, the, the way th- that should be assembled is, you know, you've got your, your, your dirt that's graded. You should have a poly, a plastic layer. 100%. That goes down there. And then you've got your, your rebar and your concrete. And that plastic acts as a vapor barrier to stop the moisture that's in the soil because all soil has got moisture. It prevents that moisture from coming up through the slab because concrete is porous. Correct. Even though, even if it's six, eight, ten inches thick, whatever, moisture is going to come up through that slab, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's going to hit that flooring. And uh, you know, if it's if it's wood flooring, it's you know, it, it's going to cause that wood flooring to cup. Correct. Or move. Degrade. Or whatever degrade. Right. So if that's done properly, that's not going to happen. But again, if, if it's on a nineteen, any older house where that either is not present or it's been compromised, you're going to see those issues. Well, and that, that age, so let's back into that just to give the, the science behind it. This hydrostatic pressure, so moisture is moved, rising up out of the earth, try to get to a lower pressure, which is the atmosphere below. So moisture is rising up all the time. And as it rises up, it's going to push against the bottom of the slab. That's why that vapor barrier is there. It's very, very explicit. Um, but that vapor barrier is a material that doesn't, it has a life to it. So eventually it would degrade. Now that requirement for a vapor barrier really didn't come around until about 1994 as a standard in the city of Houston. Um, there were a lot of uh, concrete companies that were doing it, but especially here and in Texas, we do a lot of turnkey foundations. So the builder's request to have that vapor barrier there sometimes becomes muddled because all he did was request a foundation. Mm-hmm. He didn't say, oh, I want this size rebar and this and this and this and this. So they're dependent on that design for that. So the engineered design doesn't always include the vapor barrier or whatnot. So right. we have a lot of houses up until the early 2000s that still don't have a vapor barrier. But a vapor barrier is only going to be about a 20-year product. So in our office, we consider any house um, older than 1995 to either be built without a vapor barrier or has a vapor barrier that is now deficient. Mm-hmm. So we consider everything from 1995 and younger, and every year it goes up by one by one. Actually, we actually in the office thought we should make it just an automatic 20 years, or excuse me, 30 years lower than this, so we can just track it every year and say hey, 93, and the next year we'll say 94, and the next year we'll say 95. 
it's uh it is a real thing. We will have houses that now have issues with this that didn't have issues the last 10 years because their vapor barriers became deficient. And to kind of a comment you made earlier, rare repairs for foundations almost never include vapor barriers. So all of a sudden we have a big wet circle on the the new wood floors and that's where they did the interior pier repair, right? Yeah. And then we had to deal with it or the con- conversation pit that got filled in with a wood platform. So they basically built a wood pier and beam inside a concrete conser- conversation pit, not conservation, conversation pit. Those rot over and over and over and over again. Um, because if we're seeing moving on that wood floor, it's not just the wood floor, it's how was the wood floor installed, mm-hmm. right? And there's a couple different ways to do that. Yeah, and, and so, in fact, that's why we see, if people go in and install engineered flooring directly to a slab in an old house, they often have issues with it, whereas if a wood floor was originally installed in that house, they may not have ever seen any issues. And that's because back in the day, they would install, always, they would install the wood floors on with tar and screeds. Correct. And so they'd put that hot tar down on the slab, which would effectively seal the slab and act as a vapor barrier. And then you and, and, and then you would also have your screeds on top of that, which created an air gap under the flooring. And then you get your wood flooring. And so let's let's break that up because first off, engineered wood floors. The word engineered that that means fake. Fake, right? Okay, let's just be honest about that. Engineered does not mean that it's anything better than something else. I mean, that's like if I was an engineer and I wrote a letter to my kid's teacher about that the teacher missed two questions on my, on my kid's test and I stamped it with an, it doesn't make it more official. It's not an engineered teacher's letter. I actually don't know how the flooring industry can use the term engineered flooring in the state of Texas because TDLR, Texas Department of Licensing and Regulations, enforces the regulated use of in, the word engineered engineering in only engineering practices. So I don't know how they're allowed to sell something as an engineered floor when it's not actually engineered. I think they it, it's kind of like an engineered wood product. So they use that they use that term with uh, structural beams like glue lambs and things like that. But those like are that. engineered for structural integrity. Right. This is just a finished product. Well, with the with the engineered wood, wood products though, typically it's it's constructed like a plywood where you've got you've got alternating directions, layers of materials built up with that finished material being solid wood. Yeah. And so it's kind of, it's engineered to be stable. It's this, well, I think we're really, really getting, you know, first off rabbit hole. So then we have the tar and screech. So let's talk about vapor barriers. Right. Because a lot of building, a lot of flooring products say that they require the use of a vapor barrier. What we don't want to do on a slab that is going to, that is what we consider a wet slab. So 1993, we're going to use that on okay. so, in, this, in this circle. 1993 or older is a wet slab. You do not want to put a vapor barrier on the surface of a wet slab. Just like I don't want to put a vapor barrier on the interior of an exterior wall, that is the wrong side of the vapor quotient. You fight vapor where vapor becomes part of the assembly, not where it's leaving the assembly, right. at the outside the of outside, it. Yeah. Correct. So if you put a vapor barrier down, then that moisture is going to rise up, meet that vapor barrier. It doesn't just say, oh, I'm going to stop here. It moves laterally. Right. It's going to continue to look for an area that's drier, cooler, low pressure. So it'll move over. And what is that area? Bottom plates. Right. So now it's going to rise up inside the wall. And this is one of the a, a very, very much a leading factor in the, the advancement of termites in our structures because now our bottom plates are soaking wet and it attracts termites to it. 
And then we have grow mold and all these other things that are associated with that. Vapor barriers are there. The reason why the flooring manufacturers recommend them is to protect their tail, not to protect the homeowner's tail. Right. And the installation instructions for all types of flooring materials. And then not only installation instructions, but the National Flooring Institute's reviews are not regulated by Climate Zone. So the instructions, the testing methodology, and the regulation is not built for here. It's not built for areas affected by climate migration. So that's Houston, Austin, Dallas, but that eventually will be Ohio too. So um, I spend a lot, a lot, a lot of time with uh, flooring litigation, and um, we have dissected these things and, and know that there's, there's a legitimate deficiency here in that uh, industry standard. I think it's a great point. So when you put that vapor barrier down, you're pushing that to the outside walls. Um, and then also in your outside walls, on these older houses especially, you also often have uh, you know, exterior waterproofing issues. So it, it's kind of compounding issues on your exterior walls, right? right. So, that, so the vapor from the slabs pushing out, vapor, water, whatever from the outside is hitting that. And so as you mentioned, you see a lot of termite issues and it, here in Houston, exterior walls. It tends to actually go to the interior walls more because the exterior walls already have a higher rate of moisture from the vapor drive from the outside, where the interior walls not only have a low relative humidity, but have a really, really low latent moisture quotient. So they're drier walls. So they actually tend to move to the interior walls. And I've, if you've experienced termite problems in the exterior walls, that's easy compared to termite problems in your interior walls. Right. That's horrible. Let's talk about the other issue that that we mentioned at the outset, and that's uh, flooring over a crawl space. So whether it's, uh, you know, whether, well, I guess there's there's two things to talk about here. One is like on an older house with an uninsulated crawl space, and then one is on new construction with uh, usually insulated crawl spaces, ventilated crawl spaces. Sure. So let's talk about, let's, let's bring this a little more. Let's talk about cold floors and crawl spaces. Right. So technically the crawl space is the earth and the framing assembly. But the ceiling of a crawl space is a cold floor. Right. So they're really all just cold floors. It's just this happens to be inside the crawl space. Another cold floor could be inside a garage or over a porch. But all the part over a porch or over the garage or over the crawl space is all, they're all cold floors. Right. And the cold floor, the reason why we use cold instead of calling it a hot floor, right, is because all building science is filtered through the northern terminologies, right? So it's right. freezing cold up here. It's so funny that we're talking about cold floors in the hot, one of the hottest markets in the United States, right? Yeah. Uh, but that's architecturally understood. When I first heard that term years ago, I was like, what, cold floor? Cold what? Floor we don't have that. <laughs> and and I, the way that I explain it is, yes, it's, we call it a cold floor because there's air conditioning on the other side of it, technically. Um, but it is there technically because it's a, it's a northern prophecy where you have cold air outside. So just to clear it all up, just to add some mud to, uh, to the pie. Let's assume that everything is done right, um, where we have an integral layer of air, water, vapor, pressure, thermal barrier. Normally that should be in as, as close to one element as possible or as few elements um, to create that. Then we shouldn't have a problem. You can put down your flooring and, and you're good to go. And that's also assuming that there's some other principles in place, like your, your bottom plates are all sealed, but I can, I can work through that kind of stuff. The problem is that doesn't always happen. Even to the point that I got a frantic email this morning from an attorney. Um, I had to be in court in two and a half hours, um, and uh, it's for this case. And in this case, they have a house 
that has um, a cold floor. Actually, it's a basement ceiling or unconditioned basement ceiling, and then it is an actual cold floor. It's technically a crawl space, but it's eight and a half feet up, so it doesn't feel like a crawl space. And they do open cell spray foam. And I have worked wood flooring and moisture inside my cabinets on the first floor. The insulator, who's now probably getting in trouble over all of this, he's getting pulled into this litigation, said, here's all of this documentation from all of the insulation manufacturers that say open cell spray foam was appropriate in cold floors. All this just came to light. So it's like, oh my gosh, you got to look at this document toner. So I'm like, okay, first off, I know this person. I know their methodology. I know where they came from. And I know that they've been really good for my forensic business for a long time. So keep on going, bro. <laughs> but additionally, all the documentation that he produced, which has all been truncated. I don't have any you know, bibliography. I don't know where it came from, the sources or anything like that. Um, it's not written by climate zone. It's just in general. And he even produced a specification sheet, an old specification sheet of mine, where it said open cell spray foam on the cold floor. And the reason why I had to do the open cell spray foam on the cold floor in that case is because he was the insulator on it. Mm. Actually, the builder owns that company. Oof. So we were forced into it. Even though I had gone through all my consulting and sold them, and in that house, actually, we had to come back through and remove it all and, and replace it. I, I was, a, it was a big I told you so later on. So we want, just to be clear, in the South, which you've given that, that, that disclaimer many times that this is not for everyone's consumption to apply with just blanket appeal, right? You have to actually go through and do your math and science and professionalism. Here, we do closed cell spray foam monolithic in our crawl spaces and our cold floors. So monolithic being not just between the joists or the framing assemblies, but down the sides and over if it's two by 12, right? If it's web truss, which we can have to have a conversation of how web trusses end up inside crawl spaces. I don't know how that always works itself out in terms of long-term durability to moisture exposure. And we go through the web trusses. If it's TGIs, we cover them up. But then what do you do about the ceiling of the garage? I can't roll over the joist and then go nail sheetrock to it. Right. Right. And the reason why we're trying to encapsulate as much of the joist, let's say it's a two by 12 in a crawl space is because that water vapor is still present and it's going to be moving up. So if you just spray foam between the joists, then you just pissed off the water vapor. It's going to drive <laughs> over to the joists. So I normally see failures on improperly sealed crawl spaces at flooring at year two with the flooring at year five with rotten joists. You do want to encapsulate it in two inches is generally the rule. I'll say three inches because some manufacturers require two and a half inches. Um, but at those other locations where you have to install sheetrock or hardy board, let's say it's a beach house, right? And you want to look up and see this beautiful hardy board. What we do is we run a layer of butyl tape. So marine grade butyl tape. Mm -hmm. That stuff is nasty, by the way. <laughs> like it's You know it's bad when you got to peel this sticky layer off. And as it comes off, it looks like something that dinosaurs get trapped in in the future. Like it's nasty. And if you get it on your skin, oh, you get it on no. your skin, it just removes. Oh, it's not so, just the hair; it pulls your skin it off. Wants to twist around, and um, I remember telling the guys, "You don't pull the sticky off the whole way and then put it up. You stick it up, and then you start to pull a it tiny off. little starter, starter, but, yeah. and then you go a little at a time. And we run it along the leading edge of the joist, and we lap it up about two inches. That way, we can bring the closed cell foam down the sides to meet the butyl tape. But the good thing about marine grade butyl tape, it'll seal around an 8D nail or larger. So then you can self seal in it. It does have a vapor quotient. It's not the same. It's not as low permeable, permeable or permeability as the 
um, foam, but it's something better than ignoring it altogether. Um, that's a pain on the island when it's really, really windy. And that butyl tape is not going to stick around for three months. You got to do it like the day before or two days before you install. It's especially important to compound framing, like a double, a triple two by 12, because uh, that would be all that moisture driving up between those, increasing the velocity and moisture content. So we've done a ton. None of this is required. It's not required. Right. It's all 100% voluntary. You have to, and to do it well and to nail it is not always easy unless you know you're going to do it from the beginning and you prepare for it. So. Yeah. So if, so like we, we did a house here in Houston a couple of years ago, and we, we see a lot of this in this part of the city in the flood zone where, where the houses are elevated maybe four, five, six feet. And like you said, they want to see a finished bottom to the house. Uh, so that's applicable here mm-hmm. in Houston and in those areas and, and not just in Galveston. And you're right. Like, like I, see, I see some builders don't do that, and they'll, they'll say, well... Yeah, we can't spray the foam around the joist, so we're just going to put some blue board up, you know, some some blue form, foam board up there and tape it. Which, yeah, it's giving you some insulation, but it's not protecting the edges of those of those two by twelves. No, and, and you know, insulation only works with the con- when it maintains contact with the surface that you're trying to insulate. But let's let's be honest, I don't really need to insulate my cold floors here. Right, it's not really cold out. Yes, in the winter time, we get about three or four days where it's legitimately cold. In flood-prone areas, we have to be conscious that if we install closed cell spray foam and that joist assembly does flood, you're not going to be able to remove that foam. Right. So, and there are contaminants and things like that that can get, I can treat the foam, but you would end up drying the house out from the inside instead of the underside. Yeah. So, what we do in that case is, and I'm actually start a house on Galveston Island, um, we're going to, we're going to do what's called a bond break. So in between the joists, we're going to install three quarter inch tongue and groove blue board. Wow. Yep. And that tongue and groove is a really, really important part because sealing the seam on blue board is, is difficult to do. And then, so that's going to get friction fit in place right up against the underside. Now we're doing this here also because we have an original long leaf pine. I mean, some of these board lengths are like 18 feet long without a cut. Wow. And they're beautiful. Long leaf pine is absolutely gorgeous wood flooring. And it's not even available anymore. It's like extinct. It's like getting cedar, like old growth cypress. It doesn't even exist. So we don't want to spray directly against that anyway. So we're going to do the three quarter inch tongue blue board. Friction fit between the joists. Cypress joists, like freaking awesome. They smell beautiful underneath there. Um, no cypress joists, no pest problems. And this is a 152 year old house. Wow. Yeah. Because bugs can't grow, can't go through old growth cypress. It's too dense and, and whatever. But and digressing into that my love of cypress wood um but then we're going to seal those those seams along the edge of the joist with two inches of closed cell spray foam now that three quarter inch polyiso board is closed cell spray foam in for board format house floods it's going to flood it's galveston it's going to be underwater in 10 years anyways permanently (laughs) so what do you do we can go in and just cut out the blue board drop it dry it out put the blue board back up that's how we insulate closed cell foam in flood-prone areas. In fact, aren't you going to be talking about this specifically this Wednesday? This Tuesday? No, oh, Wednesday. Yeah. Wednesday. Yeah, yeah. Our, our, our GHBA meeting. Yes. yes. We're, we're talking about building for, for disaster resiliency. Oh, my gosh. Now, I I'm, I'm no, was not invited to be on the panel. You now, were invited. No, but I you, wasn't. Ryan's sent, on the panel. Yeah, but you sent Ryan. I, <laughs> I try to get you, and you're like, no, I don't want to do a panel discussion. Take Ryan. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I will be, I am, I'm going to go, I'm going to be there because, because 
almost everyone on the panel I'm, I'm good friends with, and I haven't been to a GHBA meeting in a while. My, and it's really pinching my schedule, but I'm going to most definitely go and support Ryan. But if that comes up in conversation, you guys can always throw it to me, and I swear I won't, I won't bogart the panel. Okay. Or you could like raise your hand hey, and, and bring it up. I have a question. Yes, that's You can raise right. your hand, bring it up, and then run to the front, grab the mic. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan would most definitely know the answers to those, to those questions. So yeah, but you guys yeah. are talking about flood resiliency, yeah. um, which comes down to a lot of flooring. So that brings us to what kind of flooring can we use in the event of a flood? And we've dealt with this at Harvey, right? Right. So many homeowners after Harvey are like, you know what? I want to go back my whole house tile, right? Because if it floods again, I'll never have to replace the tile. <laughs> That's right. And actually, I saw that happen because we had uh, three three floods in pretty rapid uh, succession there in, what was that, like 2016, uh, 17, 18, you got it. something three, like that? Yeah, it's actually like late 2016 through early 2018. We just got rifled with flood after flood after flood. Yeah, and so some of these people who remodeled their house in 2016 they put down tile in the whole house. Well, mm-hmm. when they flooded again, they just they just rolled with the tile and they just wiped it down and, and kept on going, right? Yep. But think about how much like nasty flood water actually like went down through the grout and got under that well, tile and just ugh. And now if they had done smooth coat installation, which is not common, um, that's what we do when we have a really, really rough sub assembly of concrete, like rough foreign concrete, and you have to float it out and you place it in, in but that's also where the mortar, this the thin set is the mortar. It rises up, and you kind of it's almost like a brick install. Right. No one does that. That is South America stuff right there. That is that's how we Danielle. That's how we do stuff in Panama. Um, just letting you know, I'm putting Danielle because she's a she's a Southern Hemisphere girl. Um. So, anyways, the most of the time the tile is raked on. We have a rake, right? So there is water that gets trapped in that, and that water is going to be black water. Mm-hmm. So. Yes, it may be dry, but there may be some contaminants in there that could be really, really nasty. And you can't come through and clean it. So we've written plenty of letters to justify the removal of tile based on the contaminants that are trapped inside the raked tile thin set. Right. And I know you have too. We've gone through, we went through projects like that together during Harvey. Yeah. So when they install that tile, they're using, you know, like a quarter inch uh, trowel typically, which, which will use these grooves. And it, and that's what Toner's saying. That water gets down under the tile and gets into these grooves and just sits there. And yeah, it it does eventually dry, but it's gonna just leave nastiness. It's gonna be nastiness. And and clients will ask, well, what do we do about that? I'm like, well, if you start walking in circles all of a sudden, then maybe you need to go remove your tile. But then the claim is already over with. At that point, you're not gonna get paid for it. If you have you know mold sensitivities, you know things like that, you you probably don't want to just leave that tile down there. Most definitely, when that happens. So when we're talking about resilient materials flooring materials for a flood plone area we want to go with a more with a flat laid tile so what is going to be the most resilient material for this marketplace for flood and it's my favorite flooring of all flooring it's saltillo i love saltillo um and i like the saltillo with the big fat average grout line right <laughs> but you can't seal saltillo mm-hmm. you know when i walk in and there's a glaze on it that's not what it's meant to do it's meant to permeate and then, and then if the saltillo doesn't have a calcium buildup on it, then I'm a little nervous. Like, where is that calcium? Because I know that moisture is going to be rising through. But some extremely old structures have saltillo type. It's basically going to be a sun-bricked um, or a natural stone that's laid completely flat in place with no air gaps underneath it. 
Um, and it's the type that if you dropped a kid on it, they're going to crack their head open. Like they're not going to bounce. What makes Saltillo a, a good product? Like tell, tell people why Saltillo is good. So we're talking about traditional Saltillo, which is going to be sun-baked material. It's um, a very, very dense um, material. It's resilient in the fact that it's going to change over time. It's going to allow for a really high rate of permeability. You can dry it out. There's no air gap underneath it and you can replace it. So if one breaks, you can just get out there and it's not fun. And you can bust it up. And one reason why we had such a large grout line in between it was so that you could make repairs. Mm -hmm. If you have a dime line of grout, sorry, that's not going to happen. You're going to damage the tile next to it. And the grout is always, it's concrete. It's, it's the same thin set that you use to set the tile is the grout. It's actually not grout. Right. Everything is equalized. There's not a lot of variables in it. And um, we've had structures that have gone, that go completely underwater all the time. And especially when they have these in coastal environments where the saltillo is on the first floor, it just cleans up and goes on. And we've come back and swab tested it. If you try to pull it up, it doesn't matter. It will just fall apart. It'll break apart. You'll also have a very, very sore tennis elbow for a long period of time after that. I mean, a ball peen hammer will bounce back. It's pretty crazy. You to, yeah. You have to use a jackhammer, a chipping hammer to really get in yeah. there and get, and get and that so, out the right way. Yeah. And then it also, when you do take it out, it doesn't make a whole lot of dust. Because those materials are so solid, it just breaks out in chunks. Yeah. Trying to find a uh, qualified person to do the install on that, though, is, is, is tough. Because if you just use a regular tile guy, he's going to lay it just like he does yeah. tile. It should be variable. Most people don't like that, right? That we want everything to be controlled. The variability, the natural patina, it's going to change time, change with color over time. I, I really, really love the octagon shapes and all the different materials that can come into it. The uh, type of sand that is used, that is the, that is the coloring agent. Um, I've actually been to a Saltillo farm in Sonora, Mexico. Oh, where they uh, grow the Saltillo. They, they grow it there. Really? Yes. The Saltillo yes. farm. Okay. Yes, that's right. It's where they lay everything out. They also make sun, sun-baked bricks and all this kind of stuff. And I mean, it's, it's, it's a piece of technically really, really thick pottery. Mm. So very cool. Well, hey, let's, uh, let's run down kind of the uh, kind of run and gun style. Let's run down the different types of flooring and whether they are good or bad in different applications. So let, let's start by talking about... You want to set the application? Yep. So let's start by talking about new construction. Everything's perfect. New construction. And, and let's assume that the builder listens to this podcast. And let's assume that <laughs> That's the builder... Right. Uses you, me. Uses, uses Turner, our architects. And, right. And okay. so let's assume this house is being built the right the way. The homeowner's cool and everything's great. Right. Okay. So the house that doesn't exist. And the interior <laughs> designer um, is aware that she affect, he or she affects the performance criteria of the structure. Yeah. So this is like perfect. Yeah. This is not season one. So basically houses that I build. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what are our season one homeowners names again? Uh, Brian and Heather. This is not Brian this is and not Heather's Brian house. And Heather's this is their house. second house. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. All right. So uh, let's assume this is a house built on a crawl space o over a cold floor, right? Sure. And assume they've got their the right uh, vapor barrier in place. Okay. So... Going down the list of flooring types, is this good or bad to use in that situation? Uh, solid wood flooring nailed down. Solid wood flooring nailed down onto plywood? Onto the subfloor, yep. Okay, so, oh yeah, that's because we have a, a crawl space here. So, um, I, I still like to have something in between the um, subfloor and the wood floor, but I'll say this, let's, let's quantify a little bit more. Wide plank or... Two and a quarter inch shorty oak. Everybody likes the wide planks. I don't like wide plank. No, no, you're I not. Said no, you're no not one, Sally homeowner. No, 
know on the wide plank because there's still going to be some atmospheric conditions that exist inside the space. And you're going to have some seasonal cupping, normally about 10% of the total width, 10% of the total width of a four and a half or a five and a half inch, you're going to see it. Two and a quarter inch, you won't even notice it. Okay. So pick the wood species that's appropriate for your market. What's appropriate here is two and a quarter inch shorty red oak. That's what's appropriate for here. Or indigenous longleaf pine or indigenous cypress, two woods that aren't even available. So if they are, they're, you know, $38 a linear foot. Or something. And is it better to nail it, glue it, or nail it and glue it? It's better to only nail it um, to make sure that you have your expansion gaps around the perimeter of the spaces to understand the, the benefit of changing direction on your flooring, um, especially when you get to tight, compressed areas like a hallway, to put your baseboards on top of the floors, not your floors on the baseboards. That way, the width of the baseboard, the depth of the baseboard is your expansion gap. Don't caulk the baseboards to the flooring. Don't use a polyurethane finish. Only use a wax finish so that this floor is still going to move. You have to give it a place to move to, and it's more generous than it used to be. I still like screeds. Um, I like tar and screeds. It's not, the tar is not really necessary anymore, but the screeds should really be like in kind of material. So I don't like oak on pine screeds mm. unless the pine screeds are covered in tar because then I have a dissimilar material disconnecting device, which is the tar itself. Okay. But if you're not going to use tar, then I need oak to oak, pine to pine. Ooh, that's, that's rare. That, yeah. I've, but that's, never, I've never seen people. That's technical yeah. installation, right? And, and, I've, and, I, and, and there are wood floor guys, like you go to Doro and he'll, he'll do that kind of stuff. Because um, I do have clients that don't want the tar because tar is nasty. Like that's not okay stuff, man. So when we're designing for a certain health quotient, I'm talking not VOCs. <laughs> talking that, VOCs. It's like a, a vat of VOC. <laughs> There's no such thing as zero VOC tar, right? <laughs> like I don't think that exists. <laughs> All right. Uh, engineered, engineered wood, fake wood, uh, glued down. Or nailed down. What do you think? Huh. Well, so if, if, it's over, if it's over a proper vapor barrier, over a cold floor, um, I think it would depend on what the backer on it is. Some of the engineered flooring has no built-in backer on it, and some of it does. Eh. I, I know what I I'm going to say. I would say it depends, but... Okay. I'm going to say an engineered floor comes with engineered installation instructions. And you only do what they say. Mm. You don't get creative. Because the benefit of an engineered floor is it's supposed to come with an engineered warranty. And I'm using that because all warranties are totally BS. Right? It's an engineered warranty. You, know, you can put a box, you can put a stamp on a box. We can get into some Tommy Boy warranty differences <laughs> later. So, uh, <laughs> but um, you really do, and by legal standards, you need to follow their installation instructions. People want to see the warranty on the box. box. <laughs> Follow those instructions, but also read through the instructions. And because there's going to be a certain amount of those that require the flooring contractor or the contractor, they like to say, to verify. And a lot of that's going to be the moisture content in the flooring and, and the slab. And the way that you test for moisture content in the slab isn't notified in, that, in those instructions. You are set up. You are set up for failure with engineered flooring. Because they don't even, they, the, engine, the manufacturers not even fully realize what they're doing because they, it's, they don't really care. But it's actually one of the easiest little bits of lit, uh, litigation to, to resolve. Like, because a lot of times it can be resolved in a small claims court, which now in the state of Texas is $30,000. Hmm. Right? It's not $8,000 anymore. 
So it's a decent chunk of change in small claims court. So are you going to say engineered flooring, thumbs up or thumbs down? I don't. It's just. You don't like engineered flooring in general, do you? It's a big bag of confusion and marketing and BS. You don't know what you're buying. It's just just a bad business, I think. All right. So no engineered flooring. All right. LVP. Luxury. Luxury. That's vinyl. Plank oh, or luxury such, vinyl tile. Such an oxymoron. There's some really nice LVPs out there. There is. There are. It's not new, right? We've had vinyl forever in houses. Uh, one of my favorite kind of vinyl tiles is going to be um, VCT, vinyl compound tile. The Which old, is real common in commercial. Real common in commercial, but I, uh, where I went to um, school, boarding school, um, because I was a bad, bad kid. I'm just kidding. Like that's military what everyone, school. Well, it was a military school. Yes. So that's what everyone's going to think immediately. How bad was Toner? I chose to go to the school people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So, but they used to have these really colorful uh, VCT tiles. And they would have like this big, bright cream fill. And then they had this red and black like borders. And I used to always like that. Um, I thought that it was really colorful. And there was a moment in around 2000. 12 that we saw VCT start to come back and it's really, really thick. It's really resilient, um, but it has the same issues that all other vinyls have with moisture. Um, it just could manage it more because it was more, a little bit more of a mass material. I think that it's very appropriate for busy families, dogs. Um, it cleans up well. Um, as long as the underpinning isn't going to allow water to come through it, moisture, vapor, then LVP is actually pretty awesome and it's super thin, right? So we don't have to build up all this. Like, I don't think, do you make any changes when you have LVP and carpet coming together in an opening? No. No, right? No. So, and the colors are awesome and they last and they have some really, really good UV protection quotients. Um, so I like the product, but it has created some of the largest losses to date for us. I mean, we're talking... In Galveston, right? Especially, especially Bayou Vista. Let's just say that oh, neighborhood yeah. in particular, because that LVP like is vapor impermeable, yeah. right? So it's going to stop the moisture. So if if that uh, if if that elevated coastal home um, isn't properly insulated sealed. and sealed on the bottom, that moisture is going to come up. It's going to hit the LVP and stop. Correct. And then the the subfloor is going to rot underneath it. Yep. And and I had a client who that happened to them. So they sued the flooring manufacturer and the builder. They won the litigation. And part of the litigation was they would replace the LVP. They did it again. They put it back in because they never really understood. They hired some engineer to do the forensics. He never understood what the root cause was um, because that's not what he's trained to do. So they didn't know it was happening again until their pool table fell through their subfloor onto their car under the house <laughs> while they were playing pool. So they always thought, I was like, did you not notice that it was dipping? They were like, oh, yeah, we just thought that the weight of the pool table. I was like, well, that was it. And it made a big old mess. Um, and, and the litigation was already solved. So they couldn't go back. It was like the double jeopardy, right? right. You can't go <laughs> sue them again for it. I'm picturing like, like one of those uh, movies or whatever where, where someone's taking a bath in the bathtub and all of a sudden the whole bathtub comes through the floor yep. and with the person's in the bathtub taking oh. a ride. <laughs> um, and I'll tell you another v- similar story. Um, LVP over a garage. 
All right. And this was in Dallas. This is not Houston. Um, hot, wet air still. Dallas is still has some humidity. Now, this took some time to get it done, but it eventually um, their ceiling came crashing down onto the cars below it. But it was it wasn't just because of the moisture, but because of the weight that they put in there. So this gentleman worked for the Baptist something group for the state of Texas. And they used to do the students at the flagpole thing where everyone comes together. Mm -hmm. So they would get, they had all these Bibles. So they were getting ready to start a new year. So he filled the whole room up with Bibles. I mean, we're talking, you know how heavy it is whenever you bat, you move that one box of books. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. But he had like pallet of Bibles. He had, I think in, he had them in filing cabinets that were five drawer filing cabinets and he had 45 drawer filing cabinets in there. So it was literally the word of God that crushed the cars below them. <laughs> Man, they must have done something bad. Something bad. That's like bad juju right yeah. there. It was a really expensive Mercedes down there, so I'm going to figure out how that worked itself out. Hmm. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, again, we're still on uh, the fo- LVP. F- flooring, over, f- flooring over a crawl space. Uh, LVP, thumbs up. Yes, if it's if it's perfect, like in your scenario where everything was done well, let's go rocket carpet. I love carpet. It's I like carpet in the bedroom. Do you? Oh yeah, yeah. I I like to come out, wake up in the morning, toes are on the carpet. You know, dogs like carpet. Let's talk about the pad first. What before we get there? Lots of different options. Lots of different options. Um, I don't like waterproof pads. Um, when there is a leak from above, it's very confusing on how you clean it up. When there's a leak, when we have water, the res- I've had the waterproof pad, which is a vapor barrier, create my problem, not the carpet. Um, on unsealed spaces, people were like wondering why they're having to replace their carpet every three or four years just because of the water vapor moving through it. I like corn carpet. It's my favorite carpet. Corn? Corn carpet. It's the recycled husks of corn. Put in the- I have it in my own personal home. I walk on the husks of corn. It's corn. It's corn. And it, it's super small, super soft. There, it is. Um, an, a it won't grow mold or any contaminants. You can clean it with hot steam, very, very efficiently, and it lasts a really, really long time. And it's a hundred percent post-consumer recycled material. In a pinch, if you if, if if you get hungry, you just reach down there. That's and right. Snack. That's right. And that's right now in the summertime, it smells like popcorn. And the- <laughs> it's so hot, <laughs> but it does develop some static, like at a higher rate. So my golden retriever fur issue is specifically challenging at the static infused corn carpet. Mm. Um, so it, it, he, it's, it, then the Roomba hates it, like hates that carpet. Um, do you have carpet in your house right now? Uh, no, we have air, area rugs. Yeah. Area rugs. Yep. So uh, area rugs are a thing also, right? We can have a flooring that's permeable and then you go buy an area rug and put it on top of it that's not permeable and then yep. you develop moisture there. You know what? is very, very common in houses now post-pandemic that is not permeable, that goes on top of permeable floors? The, uh, the plastic mats under office you chairs. You got it, man. Yes. You nailed it. The plastic mats. Under- I bought a permeable plastic mat, one that's full of little bitty holes. Mm. Um, and it's great, except dirt goes back underneath it and it gets trapped underneath it. And then when you pick it up, it has slid, in around, slid around with the dirt and it scratches up your flooring. Mm. So it's, it's one of those things that I got to pick it and clean it up over and over again. But otherwise, the alternative option is that you're going to scratch up your wood floors with your roller chairs anyways, right? All right. Last flooring type, tile install over, over a wood subfloor. Tile install over wood subfloor. 
let's is a wood subfloor a good subfloor like like is a Vantech? Vantech. Okay. I mean I still put it on Hardy, right? And that's where we start to get to a pretty big difference in, in thickness. I like to drop that subfloor um and get a good mud set in there. Um, do you do harder mud sets on a regular basis or both? Uh, mix, mix bag? I mean, it depends. More often mud set. Yeah. Mud sets are real predictable. It's a thermal mass and uh, product. Um, I do. I Now, all of this LVP engineered tile, I don't like self-leveling float. Hmm. That stuff is caustic. It's nasty. And it's basically liquid plastic. So... When I'm telling people who can't afford to seal those spaces or those or have wet slabs that you can't do anything about, they could buy the most permeable material and then cancel it out by doing liquid liquid level float because that's liquid vinyl. Well, pretty much all flooring companies are going to go in there and do that. Yep. So and you got to like specifically tell them yep. not to. I had to go go old school. I want you to get your bucket of your mortar of your um, tile compound. I want you to lay it down and you're gonna flatten it out flatten it out i said and then you're gonna probably have to sand some of that stuff down i do have specific tile guys that we refer to people who know how to do that mm. it's not normally through the flooring companies so moving on let's talk about um flooring over a new concrete slab again assuming it's done right installing flooring over a new concrete slab so let's start back at the beginning solid wood what's this how what are we going to hear though solid wood to uh tar and screed okay because we're actually securing the wood to the screed. We're securing the screed to the slab with tar. Yes. Um, so there's no physical fastener going into that concrete. Right. But what about when someone wants to use plywood? Like plywood over the over the slab. No, over the slab. Oh, I haven't done, we, yeah, I haven't done plywood on the slab. <clears throat> it's, a, it's a most definitely a, a pretty common, especially in wide plank flooring, we see it okay. utilized. And all that is is really double decking. Um, they put a piece of a Vantech down on or something similar onto the slab, and then they put their wood directly on top of it. That's going to be really more prevalent with engineered wood floors, um, where they're going to require a solid substrate. You know, a lot of engineered floors you can't put on screens. I like it. I'm fine with what you referenced. Um, I still don't like the white plank, just because there's still atmospheric considerations. Okay. How about solid wood flooring glued down to the slab? I don't like that at all. Yeah. No. Oh, that sounds horrible. How is it going to expand and contract, right? You're actually using the minimum number of fasteners possible with the wood floor so that when it does expand and contract, it's going to expand and contract at the fastener, um, which is going to be in between the flooring, not straight nailed down. And it's going to move into those areas. So all those other principles that we see used on the crawlspace, we also need to use here. Engineered flooring glued down to the slab. Once again... If all the engineered, <laughs> the engineered flooring has an engineered instructions to work with their engineered warranty. If I don't have enough spin on that term engineered, so their fake wood floor has a fake installation instructions for their fake warranty. Engineered flooring loading, like, like, no. like snap together engineered wood flooring. No. I mean, well, I'm not going to do that. This is actually pretty popular. Like you it see is. people go to... The uh, I'm, I won't name them the big lumber yeah wood flooring right. store that's out there and they sell a ton of that snap together stuff that's going to require pressure to hold it in place right so normally that material is not is going to have less wood material and more um, vinyl or plasticky material associated with it um, and let's let's back up the slab has to be ready to accept this material it has to be dry. 
new slabs aren't curing as fast as, as they used to because of the pressure differentiation of the envelope. So we have less convection. And even the air that we did have convection to help dry it out is hotter and wetter than it used to be. So it's really not helpful. And in fact, many cases, it's a deterrent. A lot of clients don't do temporary AC. We specify temporary AC and temporary deimidification. But temp the deimidification in itself doesn't dry out slabs very much because it's trying to, it'll actually pull in moisture from the outside before it'll pull it up from the slab because right. the slab is so dense. So that material has to be ready to accept it. We're finding more often than not, it is not ready to accept materials like engineered floors. Whereas if you did two and a quarter inch shorty oak, that residual moisture is coming, going to come out of the slab will not affect that floor because it's denser in the cupping. It might cup more in the first year, but it will cup less in the second year. All right. The other type. So L LVP over the slab. If it's dry enough, okay, go after it. Same, same, same thing. Tile over the slab, carpet over the slab. Okay, before we get to those, do you put your? Are you a fan of cabinets on top of the flooring, or not? Especially real wood. Oh, so if it's real wood, we usually put down all the wood floors in the house first. On if it's screed on screeds, yeah. and then the cabinets on yeah. top of the flooring. Got it. And and I've seen also where we put the cabinets on top of the screeds, not on top of the floor. Mm, haven't done that, but. The only time that becomes a problem with the cabinets on top of the flooring is if we have a big water loss. Right. Then I, I can't, I have to remove the flooring and I end up losing the cabinets and the countertops and everything like that. I don't like wood floors in kitchens at all. It's a horrible freaking idea. So I lean into if we do have wood floors in a kitchen that we set the cabinets on the screes, not on the wood. So if there's a vent of a loss, we can pull up the flooring and I can dry out from the screed cavity. Um, that's a very, very specific thing. That, yeah, everybody wants wood in their kitchen right now, okay. and they have for a while. I know. <laughs> it's, it's, I just, and just get ready for disappointment. You're going to, your dishwasher is going to flood, your sink, your garbage disposal. If, if the ice maker's in there, hell yeah, it's going to leak. Those things love to just break and leak everywhere. And they're like, well, the machine itself won't leak. I'm like, oh yeah, but the melting ice will leak. That's what you're going to have all this water everywhere. Um, so it's just prone to, and that's a big repair, man. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to have it, cut yourself some slack and make sure your cabinets can stay while you're remediating your wood floors. We've actually done it before. It's been a while, but, but we've actually built, built a base for our cabinets to sit on. Like, yeah. Like a two by four base, even that you I come like in that. and sit, sit the cabinets on. Yeah. Do a toe box. Um, I think that's super smart because then we can just, we, but even then, you have the wood floors are underneath it, right? Well, no, you're running the, the wood floors to the 2x4 frame. Oh, I get it. And then your toe kick board is covering that transition Got so it. you don't see it. Tile. Tile straight on concrete as your main flooring. I mean, you're going to have a thin set. It's never straight on concrete. Right. right? And then carpet. Now, mind you, every two-story every two new house is not concrete on the second floor, so it's, it's essentially the same installation as a, as a crawl space, just you hopefully have a sealed envelope you don't have water vapor moving through that mid band yeah right or if it's a cold floor over a garage that's been sealed up and that's going to have the same kind of considerations as what we said just before so i love tile i think there's a reason why we have these kind of materials in in more sanitary areas right i mean most prisons have concrete floors for a reason right i'm joking that's just because of the blood sorry <laughs> <laughs> so again car Car carpet on a pad over a concrete slab. Yeah. If the slab is dry. No problems there. If the slab isn't dry, just don't do the um, waterproof pad. And we do that for animals mostly, right? 
So last thing I want to touch on, because I know we're, we're starting to run a little on time, flooring types in a remodel situation. One thing that we run into a lot, again, as we mentioned at the very beginning, is uh, moisture coming up through an old uh, through an old slab. And so the appropriate types of flooring to use in those situations. So if I'm in my, my 1950s house, and let's say that I want to yank up all my wood floors on Tarn's Greeds, and I want to go back with something else. Engineered wood down on old slab. I think you're asking for you're asking for trouble. We we have a I would have a very distinct conversation with you or with the owner that this is a wet slab, so every material that we put on it has to be permeable. And if you choose to do something other than that, you are likely going to see a failure related to it. Now, the thing about wet slabs, it doesn't happen uniformly. So what happens is you end up with a fountain point. Normally, the lowest slab. And the lowest slab is not the lowest by finished level, but the lowest element in the earth receives the greatest amount of water going into it. So that's why uh, if you have an attached garage, which is always a step down, that tends to be where all that moisture will accumulate. Or if you have one of those old tubs where they dug it out, that thing will fill up. We took one out on a project today and and they turned the AC and it filled up with water because that's the lowest point. It generally water moving up through hydrostatic pressure and capillary action develops into a fountain point. Mm-hmm. Same reason why we have a ground well, the entire the entire lot is not wet, but only one spot is wet because that's the fountain point. Those are both great points because in my 1950s house, mm-hmm. my garage slab is always moist. <laughs> and it, under the bathtub in my kid's bathroom is always a higher moisture content or the area right right yep. around there. Yep, and on on my um on my house in Houston um, I have the copper comes through our slab um, in one location, mm. and then I have it where that copper comes up because there was a dirt box there. So that dirt box doesn't have it in it in anything. So that's my fountain point. And then my garage is also like yours. It's lower, and I put an epoxy down, and I told my wife this epoxy is going to come up. Yep. And it's, it's all up. It's been four years. It's pretty much 90% gone at this point. So this winter, we're going to back everything out. And I'm just going to go ahead and, and dry ice blast the rest of it off, diamond coat it, and call it a day. And diamond coating is just a rough finish, basically. Yeah, we we see those, especially the cheaper garage epoxies. We uh, you know, like the, like the DIY kits they yep. sell it at, at the big box stores and the paint stores. We see those, you know, start just peeling up Most quite, definitely. quite often in old, on old garages. And I know that mine's accelerated because I I air condition my garage, so that's an accelerated rate. Um, so. When you're doing that remodel, if the scope doesn't include new windows and new AC and you're going to thematically stay relatively the same, you're going to have less vapor drive. So you could do a remodel today. You, they, you all leave. Two years later, they replace their AC and their insulation. Now those, those flooring elements fail. One thing I wanted to mention also is we did a, a, an addition on a house. I'm sorry. We, we didn't do the addition. I was called to consult on it. It, it, it was a 1960s house, and they did a big addition on it. They did a master suite addition, and right at the line where the old house and the new <laughs> house adjoined, there was a master closet right there. Yeah. And where in the master closet do you think they started to see the problems? Shoe boxes? Yes. Yeah. Or the, yeah, the, the, the elevated uh, shoe rail. I worked on that project with you. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so at the bottoms of all the hanging sections mm-hmm. in the closet, Right there. It's full. It was nasty. Yeah, it, w- it was full of mold because it wasn't coming up where the flooring was because it was all, uh, it was tile throughout mm-hmm. there. But right where the wood 
built-ins and the closet started, there was nothing sealing that concrete. It was coming up through the concrete, hitting that wood, and just and molding. That it, owner said, okay, well, you explain all this to me because this area doesn't have, um, it wasn't blocked, so the moisture's coming up. He said, but the tile is permeable. It's not. It's porcelain. It's yeah. permeable-ish. It's really not that permeable. Yeah, not all tile is, is permeable. Yeah, and, and porcelain tile, I swear, I feel like it's 70% of the product out there. Yeah, and especially if you're using like an epoxy grout with it too, mm-hmm. right? Yep, and if you're using a non-sanded grout that's all silica, well, not silica, excuse me, it's all uh, resin, um, it's nice and level, holds a really cool color, but it also traps moisture. Mm-hmm. So we like to go old school with that stuff. And- you know, we can make these suggestions to our clients and they can choose it or their interior designer can choose something different. When it fails, it's not us. We, we told them then. Um, and it's not our builder or it's not the people, our architect. It would just be the interior designer left to pick up the bag. Two more things that I wanted to mention that I had some notes on here. Another source, just, just aside from just the normal latent moisture that's, that's in the soil is I, I see this quite often in older homes is you'll have some water just actually like a, a lake under a house. Yeah. Um, here in Houston, if, if foundation work has been done and, and it wasn't backfilled properly, especially, and it's rarely backfilled properly, mm-hmm. you'll have these big voids under a slab. Yep. And then if there's a pipe leaking or if, the, if you've got bad drainage around the perimeter, that water is just going under the house and you just have this lake sitting under yep. your house. I actually had this happen in my very first house my wife and I owned. The guy that we bought it from had a bunch of foundation work done and had rerouted all the plumbing underground, but we kept having foundation problems right in the middle of the house, and so we busted a hole in the slab right there, and there was like eighteen inch an eighteen inch gap under my slab. Oh yeah, it all it all it all collapsed, full of water. Yeah, right in the middle of my house, and I had no leaking pipes, but it was because it was there was bad drainage around the outside, and that water was just pooling under my house. You also have that issue when there's an older house and two new houses go in. Those new houses are new slabs with vapor barriers, and all all of a sudden the water becomes compounded underneath that single house that's left. There's a rule in Texas that you can't have, you can't develop one house and flood another based on the development. <laughs> this rule, that's, that rule only applies to above ground water. So you're technically doing the same thing except it's underground flooding. Um, and that's a really hard thing to prove. But the good thing is I can, I know how to fix that. I, I can get in there and, and fix it. And normally you just say, you accept that fact and you do a capture basin underneath the structure and then you. Now, hey, guess what? You got free water for your yard. But um, <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's a good point. I'm sorry you had to go through that, Curtis. I know that was very um, traumatic. A lot of the lessons that I've learned were, were <laughs> it's because it's, it's happened to me, and so you know I have this this to talk about because so, I've lived through it. Someone the other day said um, that listens to the podcast was commenting on how, how, what we must see every single day, and he's like, you know, some someday you guys need to put your wives on the podcast. Because they have to react to what you guys bring home every day. And I'm like, I don't know if that would be a sanctioned event that I'd, I'd want to get behind. But yeah. Be one giant eye rolling <laughs> session. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Last thing I wanted to talk about is uh, finished concrete floors. You generally can't do this on a second floor. Yeah. I don't mean, you can, but it's a whole complicated process. But a lot of people want a, uh, I've had a lot of requests for finished concrete floors on the ground level. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about the pros and cons of that. Uh, I, well, first I off, is it cheaper than doing flooring? No, not no, really. It's not. I mean, I, I've, I've almost always taught people out of it. Yeah, it's also horrible on your feet. It hurts. 
walk standing on concrete all day long doesn't feel good. And we did I did a presentation last week on a concrete floor and my knees through my feet were killing me as we're standing on that concrete floor. And I was wearing like Iron Rangers, like good, like hardcore boots and they hurt. So it's not comfortable. I have a, a project that historically I've gone back to three times because of forensics, new house, new build, and, and they were going to do a finished concrete floor. So they cover it up because they don't want paint and sheetrock and someone to drop a hammer. They wanted it pristine. What did they cover it up with? Polyiso board. And then what's the builder? Really, really thick builder paper. Yeah, the RAM board. RAM board. What that did was as this slab was trying to cure up, it trapped it all. So it was soaking, soaking wet. Then they put the stain on it, which it a little septic stain and just won't hold it. And then they sealed it. Mm. And it is pushing the stain and the finish off of this house. And do you know how hard it is? How much mess it makes to refinish that? You basically have to pack out the entire house. Not only did it do that, but it saturated, saturated the um, bottom plates. And we ended up having a mold, a low mycotoxin issue, not a mold issue, mycotoxin issue. Very, very hard. I've seen that that finish uh, that the uh, the sealer actually start to flake off yeah. in those situations, it's like, a, like a garage floor. So I just saw one last week where it was presenting itself around the perimeter, mm-hmm. uh, around the baseboards. All the all the the sealer was starting to yep. to flake off. That's it. And so you can't seal it. You could finish it, but you can't seal it. And you can only finish it if it's dry. It most likely won't be dry for that finishing materials. And these materials aren't really regulated. There's not a lot of testing behind them. It's just, it's all kinds of a bad idea. Now, if someone wants to leave it naked, no sealant, and they want to come back through and they want to diamond coat it, basically rough cut it, where it has some texture and stuff, that's, that's okay. And we do that on ranchettes and barn dominiums and things like that. But it will stain. You spill some, some red wine on it, it's going to stain, man. And that's okay. But I've been to too many failed uh, finished slabs. And that was when it was so popular from about 1998 through 2010, especially out in the country. You go to every house built from that time, country house, it's all finished slab where they diamond cut it, right? Yeah. They cut the little grooves in. I'm like, great. This is what we have to deal with now. Yeah. We're, we're trying to make our concrete floors look like tile floor. Yes. Just install Just tile. Just install tile. Because then, because you're going to get tired of it. And then I had a client tell me, well, I can always tile later on. I was like, no, you can't. That's going to be an inch and a half higher than everything else in here. Nothing's going to be level. Your cabinet, all of a sudden, your countertops are literally going to shrink down an inch and a half. So it's like, it's just a bad idea. It's, I mean, if you have a party space, like a barn, a metal building or some crap like that, then do it. It's not meant for a real house. Yeah. So your, your point about being an inch and a half off, that's a, that's a great uh, kind of last thing to mention here is, you know, know what your finished flooring is before you ever start your project. <laughs> before you pour your foundation, know what your finished Finish. flooring is going to be. Because if you don't, you're going to wind up with awkward uh, yep. height changes. You know, you need to pour your slab at different elevations based on what your finished floor is going to be. FFE. That's right. Right. The finished floor finished elevation. floor elevation. I don't know how many houses I've been in where the designer didn't pick the flooring until midway through the project and they get to install it and they're like, well, how do we work out this transition? Well, and we have a project right now where our finished flooring is actually, the top of our finished flooring is at the bottom of our bottom plates. Because what we didn't want to have is was hot, wet air go through our bottom plates and go into contact with the wood floors mm. from the side. Um, and that's actually kind of a thing. If you do your sill seal right, it really shouldn't be a problem. But that was a pretty tricky little thing. The entire 
the entire house is lower. That, so it looks like you have an interior brick ledge that your bottom plates are sitting on. Hmm. Kind of cool. Takes a lot of planning. Took a lot of planning. That took a lot of planning. I think that's a great place to wrap it up. And, um, you know, all these things that we talk about, and, and not just on the epi- this episode, but on all of our episodes, I, I think it just drives home the need for proper planning, which just happens to be one leg of our house diagram, right? It's, it's the right wall. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, okay. It's one of the walls. <laughs> no, but it's it's having the right team yes. to help you plan these things. And it's going through the planning process and working out all these details before you ever start and, and, and having a good plan to put into place. Got to have your toner on, yeah, on the and, project. And, and then, you got to have your Curtis on the project. I, I'm not the one who executes it. You have to have your Curtis and it has to go into design. That has to go into engineering. This has to be thought through. We've reiterated that many 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 times on this on this podcast and i think this is a good service to to do that but we just this is just flooring all we did was talk about flooring today and i'm glad that we actually didn't have a guest because if it had been a flooring contractor i i probably would have been choked out by now <laughs> um, so we, it was a little freer to talk in the tree of trust and the branches of non-judgment or you would have choked him out <laughs> right one day someone it, would have died in this someone, podcast someone would have died but Flooring itself is so marketing driven mm-hmm. and they don't really, and, and, and we have, we, we suffer with this with a lot of interior design elements where they don't accept that they affect the performance criteria. Wallpaper is a really good example of that, mm-hmm. right? And the industry is not prepared for it. They don't educate for it. So this is going to continue to be a challenge for at least my business and forensics, but we try to back it out of the front end. Flooring is one of those industries as far as building science goes is just really far behind the curve. They are. But they have national flooring testing standards that are totally whack. They haven't been revised since the 80s, and they haven't been taken into climate considerations or anything. So, All right. Well, thank you all for joining us on this episode of the Your Project Shepherd podcast, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>